0: Thank you, Thomas. Um, welcome to all of you. Um, I want to express my appreciation to the Student Legal Forum for making this event possible. It's become a long-standing law school tradition, one which I like to think starts the forum's year in a crisp way. Um, we will talk, as Thomas suggested, both about the term that's just concluded and also some preview of the term that's about to begin. Um, I'll open up with a few thoughts about uh, the, the, the recent term. And then we'll move on to discussion of selected cases from our three panelists. Um, Barbara Armacost will focus in particular on the Trinity Lutheran case from the most recent term. Um, Michael Gilbert will give us some sense of the partisan gerrymandering cases in the court. And finally, Michael Schwartzman will talk about the travel ban cases which have taken place and will be taking place. When the panelists have finished, uh, rather than taking questions, we'll adjourn. And I'm sure the panelists will linger for a few minutes, and so if any of you have questions that you'd like to put to them individually, feel free to do that. Um, First, let me say something about the term that just just ended. You'll remember that in February of 2016, Justice Scalia died unexpectedly, opening up a vacancy on the court, and that in turn opened up a battle royal in in the uh, U.S. Senate. Um, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, to the vacancy on the court, but the Republicans in the Senate uh, refused to give a hearing. So we went, it was something like 400 and, and, and more days during which the vacancy lingered. The result being that for most of this recent term, there were only eight justices on the court and not, and not nine. And that showed up in the court's docket. Uh, they seem to have avoided the most contentious and difficult cases. Uh, Indeed, they handed down relatively few opinions, something like 70 opinions. That's really a remarkably low number. You'd have to go back to the mid-19th century to find a term in which that few cases were handed down. Um, So it it was a term of caution, a term in which there was a fair amount of agreement, partly because they avoided the toughest cases and partly because I think they went out of their way to be as unanimous as they could and to write very narrow opinions. Indeed, they were unanimous in 35 of those, uh, of, of 62 argued cases. That's more than half. That's really, again, something quite, quite remarkable. Um, it, in general, there were a few things to say about the term. Business fared very well. The um, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for example, was on the winning side in 12 of 15 cases in which it filed briefs. Uh, Justice Kennedy, we've gotten very used to this, was, as always, the critical vote on the court. The court's conservatives can't really go any further than Kennedy will allow them to do. And he was in the majority in 97% of the cases. (laughs) That's pretty remarkable. Indeed, he was in the majority in 93% of the divided cases. So you can see where the balance of power in the court lies. Uh, There there were a couple of interesting First Amendment cases aside from church and state. Um, First Amendment continues to fare very well in the Roberts Court, and I was intrigued if you're a Washington Redskins fan, you will know about the TAM case that was decided in which uh, the, the uh, Trademarks Office has um, been denying trademarks to groups, on the to marks on the ground that they were offensive to particular individuals or groups, and the court ruled against that. They said that offended the First Amendment, so the uh, case involved a an Asian group called the Slants. Uh, and I think it's clear that the Redskins trademark will now be acceptable. Um, I think the most interesting thing about this term was not so much the cases and the jurisprudence of the court, but the behavior of Justice Gorsuch. It wasn't on the court that long, but we already can say a fair amount about him. You know, he came to the court with, uh, despite being nominated by a president who in many ways ran as an outsider, um, Gorsuch came to the bench as a with strong connections to what you might call the establishment. Um, he lived in DC most of his life. He uh, practiced law there. He worked for the Justice Department. He's an Ivy League graduate Columbia University and Harvard Law School. And uh, so he has lots of connections to the East Coast. He does bring some geographical diversity to the court. He is a Westerner. And uh, he is, interestingly enough, now the only Protestant on the court, a court which is otherwise made up of Catholic and Jewish justices. Uh, we know that he brings to the court a strong affinity for the ideas of ju- the late Justice Scalia. He is, like Scalia, uh, an originalist. He believes that the Constitution should be interpreted as it was understood at the time it was written. He is also, like Scalia, a Textualist namely he says he wants to take statutes on their face and not what the legislators might have intended or what the consequences of the decision might be uh, he's perhaps goes he does go beyond justice the late Justice Scalia in um, wanting I think to overturn the chevron uh, deference uh, doctrine I think he would like to put that in his sights in the first opportunity uh, as an appeals court judge he didn't have the chance to rule on many divisive social issues so that we we can have less to say perhaps about that we do know that the um, conservative groups like the heritage foundation were enthusiastic about his appointment they were simply delighted um, to, to see his name come forward now you perhaps will remember when ruth bader ginsburg was appointed to the court um, this was in 1993 um, she vowed and i quote her to give no hints no forecast no previews, and uh, she succeeded in doing that. She set the standard for every nominee since that time. They will always say, oh, I can't go there, uh, Senator. Uh, That may come before the court. So of all the nominees since Ginsburg's time, I would suggest that uh, Neil Gorsuch may well have been the most ardent advocate of what has come to be called the Ginsburg rule. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee members pressed him on cases like Roe versus Wade or Citizens United and uh, Gorsuch he he would have the senators believe that his personal views were no consequence. He said it's a matter of it being the law and my job is to apply and enforce the law. You may remember John Roberts on balls and strikes. Well, that was Gorsuch before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We now have at least a glimpse of how his behavior on the court is likely to be from his um, brief time during the past term. Uh, The very first day in oral argument, the Perry case, uh, April 17th, um, the first case he heard as a Supreme Court Justice, um, Gorsuch virtually dominated the first half of the argument. He hammered away at counsel. Uh, uh, Christopher Landau who's a, a very seasoned Supreme Court Bar advocate and Landau said to the court we're not asking the court to break any new ground and Gorsuch's response was no just to continue to make it up well <laughs> you can see the pithy pithiness of that remark um, Gorsuch is nothing if not self confident he clearly knows where he stands He, in his first Weeks on the court, he's tangled with his colleagues, he's lectured them on the role of the court, he's made broad jurisprudential announcements in fairly minor cases. I think it's a taste of things to come. Uh, Now, there used to be kind of a rule of thumb that newcomers to the court, they called it the freshman effect, that they used to, it used to be thought it would take them, say, three to five years. Brandeis, Justice Brandeis said it took him five years to really settle in and be. Uh, comfortable with the work of the court. Um, I don't think Corsuch is going to fit that pattern at all. Um, in addition to his one majority opinion that he wrote, he wrote um, seven other opinions, three dissents, three concurrences, and one separate statement. So this is a busy guy. Now, in terms of where he seems to stand on the court now, I caution you to recognize with me that uh, this is a limited sampling so far there 's a lot of, of ground yet to come, but in base, in terms of what he did so far he 's clearly very much with the right wing of the court. Um, he voted one hundred percent of the time with Justice Thomas. One almost never sees one hundred percent concurrence between any pair of justices that 's very high indeed, and the next justice with him, he concurred the most often was Justice Alito. So we had conservative votes in a number of areas, uh, same-sex marriage, church and state, gun rights, uh, President Trump's travel ban, and campaign finance. Let me give you a quick sample of some of these opinions, and then I want to pass the baton to my colleagues on the panel. First, there was a case involving same-sex marriage. It came out of Arkansas. Arkansas had refused to put the name of the birth mother's same-sex spouse on a child's birth certificate and the Supreme Court's majority overturned the Arkansas uh, Supreme Court opinion in an unsigned opinion from the Supreme Court and basically they were saying Obergefell, the same sex marriage decision um, laid it down that these appurtenances of uh, birth and death certificates in in, uh, opposite sex marriages equally apply to same sex marriages Um, Gorsuch a dissenter in this case, wrote for himself plus Thomas and Alito and uh, basically suggested he was not altogether content with Obergefell. He said uh, nothing in Obergefell spoke, and here in, in parentheticals said, let alone clearly to the question in this particular case. And I <laughs> think that parenthetical, let alone clearly, is that a dig at Justice Kennedy who wrote the Obergefell? Well, I don't know, but it, it one one could read it that way. Secondly, Trinity Lutheran, we'll hear about that from Barbara Armacost's church and state case. All of you, I suspect, know about that case involving um, church playgrounds where uh, Justice Gorsuch joined Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion, but uh, disassociated himself from a Roberts footnote that tried to narrow very carefully the scope of the opinion, and I'm sure that Barbara Armacost will be telling us about that. Thirdly, there was a gun case. Um, The court refused to hear a challenge to a California restricting on the concealed carrying of firearms, and Justice Gorsuch joined a Thomas opinion, dissenting from the court's refusal to hear the challenge in that case. Uh, Thomas and Gorsuch labeled the um, lower court's decision to uphold the statute as being, and I quote, indefensible. And they also said they went beyond that to say that you may know the court has not heard a gun case for about seven years now, and Thomas and Gorsuch says that was inexcusable. Fourthly, the travel ban, we'll be hearing about that from Micah Schwartzman, Uh, the majority in an unsigned opinion allowed the travel ban to apply for the time being only to people from the six uh, affected majority Muslim countries who lacked a... Uh, bona fide connection to the United States. And um, Thomas plus Alito and Gorsuch would have lifted the lower court's injunction in its entirety. Finally, there was a campaign finance case. Uh, Gorsuch, joined by Thomas, dissented when the court refused to hear a challenge to uh, soft money ban, the McCain fine goal. So uh, Gorsuch really has already indicated where he stands or will come out in a number of areas. One last case I want to mention, it's, it's not a very important case. And in, in by and large, it was a case called Perry versus Merit Systems Protection Board. Um, it's a complicated case. It was about where civil service discrimination claims may be filed in the federal district court or elsewhere. And an oral argument in this case back in April, Justice Alito said there simply wasn't any clear answer to this, the question of how you read the statute. Uh, Alito said, who wrote this statute? Somebody who takes pleasure out of pulling wings off flies? And he said, nobody who is not a lawyer, and indeed no ordinary lawyer, could read these statutes and figure out what they're supposed to do. So he had very uh, opaque statutes. Um, Justice Ginsburg, writing for a majority, six other justices and herself, including Alito, said that court's job wasn't really to tweak the statute, but they did have to give it a sensible reading, so just try to make, make sense out of this rather difficult statute. Well, this didn't please Justice Gorsuch, who, in dissent, criticized. He said that what the majority was doing was tweaking the statute. And he says uh, just because it was simpler to do it that way didn't justify it. And then he, he, this is where he gets broader and more jurisprudential. He says if a statute needs repair, there's a constitutionally prescribed way to do it. It's called legislation. And then he becomes very broad. He says it's the better way to preserve liberty. I'm not quite sure I understand how this garden variety statutory interpretation case really implies, uh, implicates matters of American liberty, but this is what Justice Gorsuch said. So, again, I caution you about reading too much into a. Very few, uh, very few cases, but uh, it's rare for a new justice on the court to say so much in such a short time. Um, now, as to the term to come, uh, this past term was pretty quiet, but the term that will begin the first Monday in October is certainly one to watch. Uh, there will be a lot of action. Travel ban will be before the court. Uh, a clash between gay rights and claims of religious freedom. Uh, partisan gerrymandering. Uh, cell phone privacy, uh, human rights violations by corporations, and employees' ability to band together to address uh, workplace issues—it's really quite a. It's like the cork in the bottle is suddenly coming out. We're going to see a great deal of action this year. So, by the time we have this program next year, I think we'll have a better picture both of Justice Gorsuch individually and of where the Roberts Court is going generally. So, thank you very much.
1: So, I've been tasked with discussing two cases that implicate the freedom of religion under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. One case is Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, which was decided by the court this past term. And a second case, Craig versus Masterpiece Cake Shop, is set to be argued in the upcoming term. So, first, let me explain that religious freedom under the Constitution is governed by two different provisions. The Free Exercise Clause provides that no person shall be prohibited from the free exercise of religion, and the Establishment Clause provides that the government may not make a law respecting the establishment of religion. The Free Exercise Clause says that the government may not proscribe religion, and the Establishment Clause says the government may not prescribe it. Together they protect religious freedom by creating a space in which religious freedom can flourish. Importantly, the Supreme Court has said there's play between the joints of those two clauses. In other words, there might be some circumstances in which it's permissible to benefit religion, but not required, and Trinity Lutheran is in part about this play in the joints. So let me turn to the facts of that case. So as part of its ministry, Trinity Lutheran Church ran a preschool and a daycare center, and the purpose was to provide an educational program where children could grow in Many dimensions, spiritually, physically, socially, and cognitively, and the center had a playground that had sort of ordinary playground equipment, and the surface of the playground was gravel. In 2012, the child care center applied for a reimbursement grant from the state to resurface the playground using recycled tires. The, based on qualifying criteria, Trinity Western, Trinity Lutheran, ranked fifth among the applicants and would have received a grant, but the state denied Trinity Western's application based on language in the Missouri State Constitution, which forbid money to go to any church, sect, or denomination of religion. Because the daycare center was owned by a church, it couldn't receive funding. Trinity Lutheran then sued the state in federal court. It argued that denying grants to religiously affiliated organizations violated the Free Exercise Clause. The district court granted the state's motion to dismiss and the Court of Appeals affirmed by a divided court, and then the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Trinity Lutheran essentially raised two questions. First, does the Establishment Clause permit the state to give money to a church-owned daycare center to pave its playground? And then second, does the Free Exercise Clause require the state to give such grants to qualified church-owned daycare centers? The fact pattern in Trinity, West, Trinity Lutheran placed it between conflicting lines of cases that could have pushed the result in two or more very different directions on each of these two questions. So let me lay out these lines of cases for you. The first important line of precedent on the Establishment Clause question is a series of cases involving funding of churches and religious schools. This line actually goes all the way back to the founding era, many states collected taxes to support religious teaching by local churches. The idea was that religious teachers could teach virtue and that would make people better citizens. This practice was deeply contested and eventually all states repealed those statutes. The rule that government cannot give money to a church or to a clergy member has become a central idea in Establishment Clause jurisprudence. This rule has gotten kind of muddied, though, when it comes to government funding of religious schools. So religious schools are different from churches because they don't only engage in religious instruction. They also teach students secular subjects like math and reading and history. The early Establishment Clause precedents held that giving money and materials to religious schools was an establishment of religion. But more recent precedents have been more liberal. So, in two cases, one, Zelman versus Simmons versus Harris, the court held that if the government sets up a voucher program, students may use the vouchers at religious schools as well as secular schools. The court reasoned that the court gave the benefit to every student, and the student decided where to use it. It would be just like you worked for the state and gave some of your money to the church. In a different case, Mitchell versus Helms, the Supreme Court held that the government may also give secular instructional materials like books or computers or uh, uh, maps, for example, directly to religious schools. This is okay as long as the government distributes the materials based on non-religious criteria. Also, the amount of materials distributed has to be per capita. In other words, it has to be based on how many students choose to go to that school. And a controlling controlling plurality in Mitchell also required that the receiving schools certify that the materials will not be used for religious purposes. The line of cases I've just described is about whether the Establishment Clause permits the state to give a reimbursement grant to a qualified religious school. The majority in Trinity Luther assumed this question was easy under the facts of the case. The money was being given to a school, not a church, It was being used for a secular, non-religious reason, namely, paving a a playground. The dissent also treated the the question as easy, but in the other direction. The dissent uh, argued that the grant was going to a church which owned and operated the daycare center. In addition, there was no requirement that the playground not be used for the purpose of religious instruction. But this line of cases only addresses the equal, the equal, uh, the establishment clause issue in Trinity Lutheran, namely whether the state is permitted to give a playground grant to the daycare. It does not address the free exercise question, whether the state must give a grant to Trinity Lutheran if it otherwise qualifies for the grant. There are a number of cases that bear on this question. First, as a general matter, the government may not pass laws that discriminate against religion. In Lukumi Babaluai versus City of Hialeah, the city passed a statute making it illegal to engage in animal sacrifice, defined as the unnecessary killing of an animal. The state claimed the purpose of the ordinance was to forbid animal cruelty, but the statute also had lots of exceptions for things like hunting, fishing, fox hunting, slaughter for food, eradication of pests, etc. In addition, the legislative history demonstrated that the ordinance was actually targeted at members of the Santeria religion who sacrificed animals in their ceremonies. The, the Supreme Court struck down the ordinance and Lakumi stands for the rule that laws that target religion for special disabilities based on their religious status get strict scrutiny. On the funding side, the Supreme Court has identified two contexts in which failure to fund a religious entity ...could be deemed unconstitutional discrimination under the Free Exercise Clause. First, the government may not deprive religious entities of basic public benefits... ...such as, for example, fire and police protection, just because they're religious. These kinds of essential government benefits are viewed as part of the baseline... ...that all can expect from the government. The Supreme Court has repeated this rule many times... ...but has never defined the scope of the term public benefits... We know it includes police and fire protection, but we don't really know what else it includes. The majority in dissent in Trinity Lutheran disagreed about whether the paving grant program is a public benefit. The majority said yes, the dissent said no. The second situation in which religious entities must be funded equally with religious ones involves religious speech. In Rosenberger versus University of Virginia, The university, our university, denied student activities funding to a student newspaper written from a Christian perspective. The Supreme Court held that by offering funding to a whole variety of newspapers and other expressive activities, the government had created what is called a limited public forum. Once having created that forum, the university may not discriminate based on viewpoint. If the university funds newspapers that are coming from a secular viewpoint— it has to fund new po- newspapers that are coming from a religious point of view. In a later case, Locke versus Davey, the court made clear that Rosenberger only applies to funding speech. In Locke, the state of Washington had created a scholarship that could be used by any college in the state. When the plaintiff sought to pursue a, uh, a double major in business and devotional theology at the Christian school, his application was denied. Davy, the student, was told that he could use the scholarship at a Christian school and take religious courses, but he couldn't use the scholarship to pursue a degree that would prepare him for religious ministry. The state had adopted this limitation in order to comply with its own constitution, which forbid funding of religious organizations. The plaintiff argued that Rosenberger required the state to fund his religious degree if it funded secular degrees. In denying the plaintiff's claim, the Supreme Court said two important things. First, the court declined to apply Rosenberger. The court reasoned that the state did not create a public forum for speech by offering scholarships. Rosenberger only applies to discrimination against religious speech. Second, the court declined to apply Lukumi Babaluai. The court held that the state does not discriminate against religion simply by failing to fund it. The court said, and this is important, that the state had gone a long way toward funding religion equally. The scholarships could be used at a religious school. Students could take religion courses. The only thing they could not do is get a degree designed to prepare them for the ministry. The court said the state's effort to avoid funding clergy training was permissible in light of the Establishment Clause history that forbids money to go to churches. With this background, we finally get to Trinity Lutheran. The court's holding is twofold. The court held first that permitting Trinity Lutheran to participate in the playground repaving program did not violate the Establishment Clause. Second, and more contested, the court held that not permitting Trinity Lutheran to participate would violate the Establishment Clause. Let me take these one at a time. The majority actually gave short shrift to the, to the, uh, the um, Establishment Clause issue, stating only that the parties agreed that the Establishment Clause Establishment Clause did not forbid the grants. The dissent responded that the majority had ignored a fundamental principle that goes back to our founding, and it's the one I've mentioned, which is money cannot be collected and given to churches. The question to be answered, according to the dissent, is whether a state can decide not to pay for improvements to a church. The the dissent argued the the answer to that question is yes. Some of the court's precedents support the dissent's argument. In cases involving state funding improvement to buildings at religious schools, the court has required assurances that these buildings will not be used for religious purposes. In addition, recall I said that in Mitchell v. Helms, a controlling plurality had permitted money to go to religious schools only if the money was not put to religious uses. I think the dissent's arguments required more discussion than the majority gave it, and here's the best response to the dissent's argument. It is that the founding era concerns were very different from the ones that are at issue in Trinity Trinity Lutheran. The assessment bills at issue then were special assessments for specific funding of religious teachers. The funds at issue here come from general taxation and and they're being used to fund a playground, which is far afield from funding religious instruction. We should continue to affirm that special funding for the religious functions of churches is unconstitutional. But as Professor Laycock points out in a recent article, what is at issue in cases like Trinity Lutheran is religiously neutral funding of some broader category of private activity, things like child care, education, medical care, and social services. The organizations that seek this funding generally provide a service that's being offered by both secular and religious entities. These are not the kinds of institutions the founders were thinking about when they argued against the assessment bills. The free exercise part of the case is more difficult. The Court of Appeals found the case indistinguishable from Locke versus Davy. Like the scholarship in Locke, the playground repaving program is not speech, so the equal funding rule of Rosenberger doesn't apply. And similar to the situation in Locke, the state sought to follow its own state's constitution which forbid money to go to churches. The majority in Trinity Lutheran held that Locke did not apply on these facts. It distinguished Locke on two grounds. First, the reason the state denied funding in Locke was to avoid paying for training of clergy. Thus, the state's reasons in that case hewed very closely to the circumstances that gave rise to the Establishment Clause. Tax money was being used to fund religious teachers. The state in Trinity Lutheran was paying for a playground, which has nothing to do with religious teaching. Second, the court pointed out that in Locke, the state's program did not force the student to choose between his religious beliefs and receiving the aid. The scholarship could be used to attend a religious school. The student could take religious classes of all kinds. The only thing he couldn't do is to use it to get a a degree to prepare him for a career as a pastor. By contrast, the repaving program at issue in Trinity Lutheran put the Church to an unconstitutional choice. It could either participate in the paving program or continue to operate as a religious institution, but it couldn't do both. This made the case different from Locke, where the plaintiff had many ways he could use his scholarship while continuing his religious education. The majority went on to argue that denying Trinity Lutheran the opportunity to participate in the repaving program also violated the rule against discrimination on the basis of religion laid out in Lakumi Babaluwai. The court argued that participation in the paving program was a generally available public benefit. The state cannot deprive Trinity Lutheran of a public benefit solely on account of its religious identity. The majority's reading of Locke is very important. The precise meaning of Locke has never been clear. Locke had come to stand for the idea that when the government offers neutral funding of a broad category of private activity, it may include religious organizations, but it need not include them. But the case also had two narrower readings. The court in Trinity Lutheran distinguished rather than overruling Locke. In doing so, the court chose the two narrower readings of Locke. The court focused on the fact that the funding in Trinity Lutheran did not implicate the kind of central establishment-clause issues at at issue in Locke, funding a playground is not like funding clergy training. Second, the court relied on the Locke court's conclusion that the student was not forced to choose between his religious convictions and the governmental benefit. Unlike in Locke, the funding regime in Trinity Lutheran did require the church to choose between its religious identity and the benefit. Trinity Lutheran was decided by a vote of 7 to 2, and i think the only reason for this overwhelming vote was that the fact was about the case was about a playground and it was about the, and the underlying issue was children's safety this made it look a lot like a secular public benefit akin to fire and police protection but there's also another reason for the 7 to 2 vote it has to do with the following footnote which professor howard mentioned in the majority's opinion here's what the footnote says this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious religious issues of funding or other forms of discrimination. The footnote says two things. First, it affirms that the government may not discriminate based on religious identity. This rule will clearly apply to other equally secular uses of money by churches or religious organizations. Second though, it reserves the question of whether government money can go toward religious uses. The footnote reveals what is really at issue in Trinity Lutheran, which is funding for religious schools and other religious organizations that offer services to the public. A broad reading of Locke had seemed to hold that equal funding for religious schools was not required by the Free Exercise Clause. The reasoning of Trinity Lutheran puts that issue back on the table the four justices that signed on to footnote 3 carefully reserved that issue for further consideration. Since then, the Supreme Court has remanded two cases that present variations of the issues raised by that footnote. Now, let me just say a few words about Craig versus Masterpiece Cake Shop Incorporated, which will be heard this coming term. In July 2012, Charlie Craig and David Mullins went to Masterpiece, a Denver-area bakery to order a wedding cake for their upcoming wedding. Jake Phillips, who is the owner of the bakery, declined, saying it does not, he does not create wedding cakes for same-sex weddings because of his religious beliefs. Phillips, who is a Christian, also closes on Sundays and does not make other cakes that violate his religious beliefs. For example, he doesn't make Halloween cakes, and he doesn't make cakes that celebrate divorce. Phillips... <laughs> Phillips said he would be happy to sell the men any other baked goods, but he would not design a wedding cake. Craig and Mullins filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Division, arguing that refusal to design and create a cake for their wedding violates Colorado's anti-discrimination law. This law bars places of public accommodation, which means any business that sells to the public, from discriminating based on, among other things, sexual orientation. The question presented to the Supreme Court is whether applying Colorado's public accommodations law to Phillips would violate the Free Speech or Free free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Phillips argues that requiring him to make a cake for a same-sex wedding forces him to support an event as to which he has deep religious objections. This would violate his rights under the Free Exercise Clause, he says. He argues that requiring him to use his artistic skill to design and create a cake celebrating same-sex marriage also forces him to convey a message with which he disagrees. He argues this would violate his rights under the free free speech clause. The state and Craig and Mullins counter there's no constitutional problem because the public accommodations law targets only conduct, not speech. On the free speech claim, they argue that no reasonable observer would understand the bakery's provision of a cake to a gay couple as an expression of approval of the customer's customer's marriage. Rather, observers would see it as compliance with a non-discrimination mandate. As with the free exercise claim, they argue the Supreme Court has held that the right to free exercise does not include the right to be free to disobey neutral and generally applicable laws. The state also argues that the implications of the, re- ruling, for the bakery, um, of ruling for the bakery would be sweeping. It would apply not only to businesses that use expressive skills, it would apply to a wide range of businesses that could claim that complying with the law would convey a message with which they disagree. Phillips and Isimiki dispute this parade of horribles. They agree that some other expressive businesses could make speech claims, but they argue that most vendors would not argue, would not be able to argue that they were expressing a message about marriage by doing things like renting out their facilities or offering their services. I want to say two quick things about this case. First, as to the two claims in the case, Phillips free exercise clause will run into some trouble. The, uh, the, the state is correct that, um, that the, the, the Court will probably find that anti-discrimination law is a neutral and generally applicable law, and that will foreclose the religious claim under Employment Division v. Smith. On the other hand, the Supreme Court has held in Lee v. Wiseman that the government may not coerce anyone to support or participate in religion or, or its exercise. Weddings are often deeply religious events, and the question will come down to whether forcing someone to make a cake containing a celebratory message implicates this rule. The speech claim, or perhaps a hybrid claim, is the more likely route for the court's resolution of the case. And the question will boil down to whether the court agrees that cake creation and design is expressive speech or action. Now, I want to say one last thing, which is there's an underlying policy issue which may or may not influence the court in in this case, which is what is the purpose of anti-discrimination law? Is its purpose to make sure that certain groups are not denied basic goods and services based on characteristics like race, religion, national origin, or sexual orientation? If that's the main purpose, then it might be relevant that Craig and Mullins had no trouble buying a cake from some other bakery. On the other hand, is the purpose of anti discrimination law more about human dignity? Is it about sparing people the humiliation of being turned away when they try to get services? The answer to these questions does not decide the case, but it determines what interests should be balanced against the religious and expressive interests on the other side.
2: Okay, thanks to the Student Legal Forum and Professor Howard for organizing, and thank you all for coming, especially on a nice, uh, sunny evening. It's always a pleasure to participate in this event. The relationship between law and American democracy is deep, it's complicated, and it's often murky. The Supreme Court will reconsider this relationship, or at least one of its important strands, in the next term in a case called Gill v. Whitford. The claim in Gill is that the state of Wisconsin engaged in partisan gerrymandering in violation of the Constitution's First and Fourteenth Amendments. I'll say more about those claims in just a few minutes. A victory for the challengers in Gill could have major political consequences. The Wisconsin legislature and other legislatures and decision-making bodies around the country could change dramatically. Because the stakes are so high, the Supreme Court may take a pass in this case. Sometimes the court steers clear of cases like this by declaring the underlying issue a political question that federal judges lack power to resolve. Assuming the court makes a decision on the merits, it faces a very difficult challenge. How to decide when partisan gerrymandering, gerrymandering, which everyone thinks is permissible, or just about everyone thinks is permissible at least in small doses, crosses the line and becomes unconstitutional. Now, before turning to the case, let me give you some fundamental background. As you probably know, the House of Representatives has 435 members, and states send members to the House in proportion to their populations. So a state with a small population like Rhode Island sends only two members, while New York sends 27. Virginia sends 11 representatives to the House. Now, in general, representatives are not elected statewide. Instead, they're elected from individual districts. So in Virginia, we have 11 seats. The state's divided into 11 districts. Right now, we are all in the fifth district. And every two years, voters in each district elect someone to represent them for the next two years. Now, dividing voters into districts is not unique to the federal system. We have, as you know, 50 states and thousands of municipalities around this country. Many of these units of government are run by groups of representatives, legislators, city council members, and so on. And many of these legislators are elected district by district. So let's go back to the Virginia example. We have 11 seats in Congress. We also have a State Senate consisting of 40 seats and we have a State Assembly consisting of 100 seats. So if you just picture the Virginia map overlay on this 11 congressional districts and on top of that 40 Senate districts and add another 100 for the House. We're divided up in all kinds of different ways. Now who draws all of these district lines? In almost all states the answer is the same. The state legislature does. Yes, they draw their own lines. And if you're thinking this presents a conflict of interest, um, you're right. Now, let me be clear. Legislators do not have complete discretion in the drawing of lines. Different federal and state laws constrain them in different ways. So, for example, districts must have approximately equal populations. This is why new lines get drawn every 10 years. After each census, we see that our existing lines are no longer no longer produce equal population districts, so we have to redraw them. In addition to the population constraint, district lines must not disadvantage racial minorities in violation of the Voting Rights Act. They should not break apart cities or other communities of interest. For example, Charlottesville should not be split into two separate congressional districts. Districts should be compact, meaning they should look more like squares or circles and less like octopuses, and so on. (laughs) Okay, notwithstanding these constraints, legislators still have a lot of discretion. Take Virginia again. There are many different ways to divide our state into 11 congressional districts. Different configurations may do an equally good job of satisfying the various federal and state requirements that I mentioned, but these configurations may not perform equally with respect to politics. Some configurations, some maps, advantage Republicans, and others advantage Democrats. This fact gives rise to partisan gerrymandering, the drawing of political lines for political advantage. Now, let me give you a simple example to make this clear. Suppose we have a state with just nine voters in it, and suppose we must divide these voters into three equal districts, so three voters apiece. Now, of our nine voters, six of them are Democrats and three of them are Republicans. How should we split them up? Well, one possibility would be to put three Democrats in the first district, three in the second, and three Republicans in the third. This will produce a legislature with two Democrats and one Republican. This is proportional representation. The ratio of Democrats to Republicans in the population is six to three, or two to one, and the ratio in the legislature is two to one. Of course, if you're the Democrats and you have six of nine votes, though, why stop there? Instead of doing three, three, and three Republicans, you can, in each of the three districts, put two Democrats and one Republican. Now you don't get two out of three seats. You get them all. You represent two-thirds of the population, and you control 100% of the seats. Now, this logic gets us to the case, Gill versus Whitford. In 2010, for the first time in over 40 years, the voters of Wisconsin elected a Republican majority in the Assembly, a Republican majority in the Senate, and a Republican governor. They controlled all the branches of government, and consequently, they did not have to compromise with the Democrats in any way to draw new lines following the 2010 Census. Specifically, the Republicans' job was to draw 33 Senate districts and 99 Assembly districts. They hired a fancy law firm. They hired some statisticians. They gathered information on voters' addresses and political affiliations. They used the newest technology available and produced Act 43, a bill to adopt new district lines. Act 43 divided 58 of the state's 72 counties across different districts, Act 43 moved more than 2 million people into new districts, and Act 43 was adopted on a strict party-line vote. This is, by any measure, a classic partisan gerrymander. The map performed just the way the Republicans planned. In the 2012 elections, Republicans won 60% of the seats in the state assembly, while winning just 49% of the statewide vote. So conversely then, Democrats won about 40% of the seats despite getting over half of all the votes. In the 2014 election, the Republicans won 64% of the seats in the Assembly while getting just 52% of the vote. Now enter our plaintiffs. A group of Wisconsin voters challenged Act 43 in federal court. They claim that Wisconsin's partisan gerrymander violates their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Now let me flesh out their claims just a little bit. So among other things, the First Amendment protects your right to engage in political expression and association. Affiliating with the Democratic Party is an act of political expression, it's an act of political association, and, the argument goes, the state of Wisconsin is punishing Democrats for these protected acts, uh, uh, and it's doing so by pushing them into districts that will disempower them politically. Let me turn now just briefly to the 14th Amendment claim. As you probably know, that amendment requires that citizens in general be treated equally. The plaintiff's argument is that they're not being treated equally. Republicans are being treated one way, sorted into districts that empowers them, and uh, Democrats are being treated the opposite, sorted into districts that weakens their political power. In short, the Democrats are claiming that their voting power is being diluted. Now, to my surprise, and the surprise of just about every court watcher I know of, the lower court found in favor of the plaintiffs. They said this is an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. That's striking because federal courts have never done that before. The Supreme Court promptly took the case, and it's set for oral argument in just a few weeks. Now, in my mind, Gill versus. Whitford reduces to three core legal questions. First, are partisan gerrymandering claims justiciable? That is to say, can you even bring cases like this to federal court? The answer, tentatively, is yes. In the most recent Supreme Court case on this matter, a case called Vieth, five justices held that partisan gerrymandering claims are indeed justiciable. You can come to court and bring this complaint and ask for resolution of your dispute. The trouble is that those five justices in Vieth, it's a famously fractured opinion, were scattered across various concurrences and dissents and you had to count heads carefully to get to 5. Some of those justices have since left the court. So what will today's court do? Well, they may well conclude that these claims are not justiciable. They could base that conclusion on the political question doctrine, the political question doctrine, excuse me, which states and they would be stating in essence that this is a matter for the elected branches to sort out, not for federal courts uh, uh, who are wary of wading into the political thicket. The problem with that argument, of course, is that it's too late. The courts are already knee-deep. They're so involved in districting and have been for decades, it's hard to understand what additional harm could come from taking one more step. Assuming the court decides it has jurisdiction, it must address a second core question, does partisan gerrymandering actually violate the Constitution? Or is partisan gerrymandering, however unwise, anti-democratic, unfair, or whatever else not actually a problem for which the Constitution offers redress? This is a harder question than you might think. The Constitution clearly grants states the power to district. It's their responsibility first and foremost. States have engaged in partisan gerrymandering since our republic's earliest days. The term gerrymander, some of you may know, comes from the strategic drawing of district lines in Massachusetts in 1812. Furthermore, the root complaint about gerrymandering is bound up with proportional representation, which is not a value that the Constitution explicitly protects. So to see this return to Wisconsin's numbers, Republicans in 2012 won about 49% of the votes. If they'd gotten about 49% of the seats, we would have no case. The trouble is they got 60% of the seats. Their power in the legislature is disproportionate to their vote share. It's this disproportionality that is at the very heart of the plaintiff's complaint. To side with the plaintiffs, to demand a map that produces seats in proportion to votes, is to enshrine, at least in some way, in the Constitution, a commitment to proportional representation, or so the state of Wisconsin argues. The Constitution doesn't explicitly demand or protect proportional representation and the Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected it as a constitutional requirement. Now, the third and final question that's core to the case is this. When does partisan gerrymandering cross the line? Assuming the claim is justiciable, and assuming partisan gerrymandering can violate the Constitution, when does it? The answer can't be that every line drawing exercise with even a hint of partisanship violates the Constitution. Politics and districting are so deeply intertwined that full separation is almost certainly impossible. So we have a typical line-drawing problem. This problem has stymied litigation over gerrymandering for some 30 years. The Supreme Court has invited litigants to present a clear and judicially manageable standard for sorting permissible from impermissible gerrymanders, but up to this point, no one has succeeded in offering one. Well, can that change? Do the Wisconsin voters have a sensible approach that the court might adopt? Maybe. Thanks to advances in social science, we now have measures, uh, uh, or we can now measure and compare different degrees of partisanship and districting in a way and with a precision that we previously could not. Now, I'd like very much to walk you through all of this with a whiteboard, and I'm sure as law students you appreciate math and statistics, but time is short. So you'll have to go read the American Political Science Review. I'll just make one point for you, even if courts can use statistics to measure partisan gerrymandering with a precision that they previously could not, this doesn't make the line drawing problem go away. They still have to decide when has gerrymandering gone too far. Now let me just conclude briefly with a pair of dueling policy arguments, starting with a defense of partisan gerrymandering. Law and democracy, and especially constitutional law and democracy, are often at odds. Supermajority rules for constitutional amendments, the filibuster in the Senate, the presidential veto, and many other legal institutions in our system create space between law and popular will. Today's majority wants one thing, but yesterday's majority wanted something else, and because of these institutions I've mentioned, yesterday's majority still controls. Now, we often accept this gap between the law and today's popular preferences because of legal stability. Given the values of reliance, predictability, and planning, things that the 1Ls in the room are probably hearing about all of the time, we often prefer a stable law from the past to a new, popular, but unstable law today. Partisan gerrymandering can be seen as just another manifestation of this choice. Of course legislators draw lines to entrench themselves to maintain maintain power for longer than they otherwise would. This means a minority's rules might, at least for a time, control a majority, but it also means that the rules do not flip with each change in the political winds. Finally, let me argue against partisan gerrymandering. The argument against is so intuitive and so powerful that it hardly needs developing. And in fact, I can give you the whole argument in just two sentences. Voters are supposed to choose their representatives. Representatives are not supposed to choose their voters. Thank you.
3: So I I also want to thank Professor Howard for inviting me to participate in the Supreme Court Review. I think this is the first one of these I've done, so I can't say like Mike that it's a pleasure to come back here. Um, We'll see. Uh, And thanks, of course, to the Student Legal Forum, uh, which is a group that I participated in as a student when I was um, here at the law school. Um, My assignment is to talk about uh, the litigation over President Trump's travel ban. Um, So this is going to be both a review of the last term um, and a preview since these cases are being actively litigated. In almost exactly a month, on October 10th, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear an argument in um, Trump versus uh, International Refugee Assistance Project called IRAP. Um, and Trump against Hawaii. Um, what I wanna do is provide a procedural history just to describe to you the events that have taken place up to this point in the development of all this litigation. Um, I'll talk about the questions just briefly that the Supreme Court will be reviewing and then uh, and I'll comment um, also again briefly on the, on the merits of this case. Um, but before I do all that, you, you might've noticed it's been a busy week in this litigation. If you've been watching the headlines um, related to the travel ban, you know that lawyers um, have been at work, and so has the Supreme Court. Last Thursday, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the government couldn't ban grandparents, grandchildren, brothers-in-laws, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and cousins because those people have, quote, a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. We're not sure about mothers-in-law. Uh, <laughs> let's not go too far here. <laughs> I think they count, too. Um, The Ninth Circuit also held that the government could not ban people with formal, quote-unquote, formal assurances from the U.S. nonprofits that help settle refugees. In response, the Trump administration filed an emergency request to stay the Ninth Circuit's ruling, but they only challenged the part about formal assurances. Um, Apparently the SG wasn't confident about banning extended family members, so they didn't ask for a stay about uh, that part of the ruling. You know, you have to pick your battles and don't pick them with grandma. At least least not in my family. Um, This past Monday, that's two days ago, Justice Kennedy granted the government's request to stay the Ninth Circuit's ruling that would have allowed the entry of thousands of refugees with formal assurances from U.S. resettlement agencies. So if you're keeping score, grandmas are in. People with formal assurances are out, at least for right now. Um, You might be asking, how did we get to this point? to a place where um, federal courts, including the Supreme Court, are deciding whether grandmas, aunts, second cousins, you name it, are allowed into our country. Um, If you're like me, you can barely remember what happened two weeks ago uh, in our political environment, let alone um, six months ago. So let me give you a recap um, of the facts of these um, travel ban cases. And this is going to be a somewhat shortened version, but um, it's still complex. you might recall going um, way back to last December that um, during his campaign, Donald Trump made various statements calling for the exclusion of Muslim immigrants from this country. I'll give you just a few examples. Um, going even further back um, to December 2015, Trump issued a statement on, quote unquote, preventing Muslim immigration, which called for a, quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. On March 9th, in a CNN interview, he said, I think Islam hates us, and later that month he said, quote, we're having problems with the Muslims, and we're having problems with Muslims coming into the country. After being criticized for proposing a Muslim ban, Trump went on Meet the Press and said, quote, people were so upset when I used the word Muslim, oh, you can't use the word Muslim, remember this, and I'm okay with that because I'm talking territory instead of Muslim. Seven days after his inauguration, on January 27th, 2017, President Trump signed Executive Order 13769 entitled, quote, Protecting the, national from foreign, the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, unquote. I'm going to call this the first executive order because, as you may know, there is a second order, which um, I'll come back to in a moment. The first executive order had a number of provisions, but three were especially important. Invoking his authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act, first, the president suspended for 90 days the entry of foreign nationals from seven Muslim-majority countries, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Second, the president suspended for 120 days the United States Refugee Admissions Program, denying entry to refugees from around the world, um, on the resumption of the program, the order directed the Secretary of State to, quote, prioritize refugee claims made by individuals on the basis of religious based persecution, provided that the religion of the individual is a minority religion in the individual's country of nationality. That is, the order gave special protections for religious minorities. Um, at least it provided them with some priority in refugee claims. And third, The order lowered the number of refugees admitted per fiscal year from 100,000 to 50,000 refugees. Um, Implementation of these um, three provisions caused instant chaos and confusion at airports around the country, and for that matter, around the world. Um, The order was immediately challenged in federal courts, and a district court in Washington state blocked its nationwide enforcement. The Ninth Circuit Um, upheld that court's decision in a um, panel ruling, prompting a tweet from President Trump who declared, and this is in all caps, just so you get a visual, see you in court, the security of our nation is at stake. You might have thought that that tweet would lead to a direct appeal to the Supreme Court, but that is not, in fact, what happened. Um, Instead of appealing the Ninth Circuit's decision, about a month later, on March 6th, President Trump revoked his first executive order and issued a second one, Executive Order 13780, what I'll call the second executive order, or I'm just going to call this the order uh, for short. So this order largely resembles the first with some important modifications. Again, there are three main um, provisions that are being litigated under this order. Let me just briefly mention them first. Section 2C of the order suspends entry of foreign nationals from the original list of countries minus Iraq, which was dropped from the list. Section 2C allows for case-by-case waivers when denying entry would, quote, cause undue hardship. Second, Section 6A reinstates the 120-day suspension of the refugee program, but notably, this order does not provide special priority for those who are being religiously persecuted, that uh, provision from the first order was dropped after um, the administration was criticized for discriminating on religious grounds in favor of um, Christian minorities from Muslim-majority countries, but against Muslims who are being persecuted in those countries. The order does explicitly state, this second order, that it is not motivated by animus toward any religion. And thirdly, um, Section 6B of the Second Order again limits refugees, uh, admitted per year to 50,000. President Trump justified these provisions on grounds of national security, claiming that the government needed time to review its existing security policies and to protect the United States against the entry of foreign nationals who might commit terrorist attacks here. Like the first order, this second one was immediately challenged in federal courts. Two district courts, one in Maryland sitting within our own Fourth Circuit and the second in Hawaii, concluded that the order likely violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment and they blocked its nationwide enforcement. On May 25th, the Fourth Circuit sitting uh, on Bonk, that is the full court sitting in Richmond, um, issued a decision. The court divided 10 to 3. 13 federal judges heard this case in the Fourth without actually a panel decision, a rare event uh, in the Fourth Circuit. Um, The majority of the court affirmed the Maryland District Court's conclusion that President Trump's order likely violated the Establishment Clause, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of religion by the government. The majority held that the order was not motivated by national security concerns, but rather by the desire to exclude Muslims from the United States Chief Judge Gregory wrote that the executive order, quote, speaks with vague words of national security, but in context drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination. On June 1st, the government appealed the Fourth Circuit's decision to the Supreme Court. It requested that the court stay the lower court um, injunctions. Shortly thereafter, a three-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit, that's out of the Hawaii case, issued a unanimous decision upholding the injunction against the main provisions of Trump's second order. Instead of deciding the case on constitutional grounds, however, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the president had exceeded his statutory authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act. So, again, if you're keeping score, you have the Fourth Circuit holding that... uh, Provisions of the order are unconstitutional under the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Now the Ninth comes in and says they're also in violation of federal immigration statutory law. Are you still with me? On June 26th, we're still going, um, uh, this, this um, past summer, the Supreme Court granted the government's petition for certiorari. That is, it took an appeal from the government and it consolidated the cases for argument, which is again scheduled for a month from now on October 10th. The court also granted the government's request for a stay, which means the government can enforce the travel ban in Section 2C of its order, barring the entry of foreign nationals for 90 days. But there's a catch. And that is that the Supreme Court left in place the injunctions with respect to foreign nationals who have a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. This, of course, immediately raised the question, well, who has a bona fide relationship? Um, Trump's lawyers read the provision narrowly to exclude extended families. Grandmothers are out. Right, And, of course, that was immediately challenged in federal courts. Everything here, you're seeing a pattern, is immediately challenged in federal courts. Um, and those courts rejected the government's position. And you know the rest of the story from this week, which is, again, if you're keeping track, government, um, grandmothers are in and people with formal assurances are out. That's where we stand right now. Okay. So we're all cut up to speed on the procedural history of the travel ban litigation. It's complicated. So what's next? Um, what's going to happen in the Supreme Court? The court is scheduled to hear argument on four main issues. So here they are. First, does anyone have standing to challenge um, the travel ban? This is a tricky set of questions under federal court's doctrine and also because there's some moving targets here. People apply for visas and sometimes they get them. And then their claims may be mooted. Um, so it's not entirely clear whether anyone has standing anymore and the government is making ferocious arguments now that no one has standing in this case should go away. Second, um, given the ban on entry in Section 2C um, was only supposed to last 90 days, and that 90 days has been pushed back for various reasons that I won't get into, but there's a question about whether the challenges to that part of the order are moot, and I'm just not going to say anything more about that question right now, um, but there are some um, technical arguments uh, on both sides of this question as well, and the Supreme Court explicitly asked the parties to brief that question. You might think this would be one way to get rid of the case. Um, Third, did President Trump exceed his statutory authority under the INA? That's the argument out of the Ninth Circuit, and the Supreme Court will take up that question. And then lastly, does the travel ban violate the establishment clause? Um, I, I don't know how much time I have. In a few remaining minutes, let me do this. I, I'm going to leave aside the questions about standing, mootness, um, and uh, immigration um, statutory uh, law that applies here. If you want to know more about immigration, Dave Martin is right there, and you should direct your questions to him and not to me, because I don't really know anything about immigration law. Um, That's not quite right, but he knows more than probably all of us put together, and maybe all of us in our lifetimes, so direct your questions there. Um, I want to talk uh, for just a couple minutes about what I think is really the heart of this case, um, which is Uh, the claim of religious freedom under the First and Fourteenth Amendments. If you cut through all the federal courts doctrine and even the statutory thicket surrounding immigration, the central conflict in these cases, at least um, in my mind, is um, about religious freedom versus national security. Um, For purposes of full disclosure, I should tell you that starting in March, I helped to organize um, a series of amicus briefs signed by 50 or so constitutional law scholars around the country And together we've argued that the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, and the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment contain a common principle, that is, each of them reflects a common constitutional principle, namely that the government is absolutely forbidden from acting on the basis of religious animus. The Supreme Court has written that, quote, the clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that one religious denomination cannot be officially preferred over another, Similarly, in applying the free exercise clause, the court has declared that, quote, legislators may may not devise mechanisms overt or disguised designed to persecute or oppress a religion or its practices. And in a series of cases culminating in United States against Windsor, you may know this um, case involving Edie Windsor, who passed away yesterday. This case involves um, a challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act. In that case, the Supreme Court held that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause bars the government from acting on the basis of discriminatory animus. Our claim is that in this case, um, and given some of the statements made by Trump that I read you earlier, and there are many more, both before and after the election. But given those statements, there is clear evidence of animus against Muslims uh, with respect to the travel ban. In fact, I would go further and say that rarely has a government actor expressed so much animus so clearly and so repeatedly Still well represented um, by Jeff Wall, the acting solicitor general, the government has argued that in the immigration context, the president has sweeping power and may exclude foreign nationals from entering our country so long as he has a facially legitimate and bona fide reason. And the government asserts that Trump's national security determinations, in fact, provide such a reason. But I would submit to you, we have heard arguments of this kind before. In Korematsu against the United States, which was decided in in 1944 during the midst of World War II, the Supreme Court upheld a racist policy of Japanese internment based on national security determinations. That decision, Korematsu, was a shameful one, a failure of judicial courage. And I think today the court faces a similar test. The president claims that his orders were justified by considerations of national security. And the president's lawyers argue that the Supreme Court owes him deference for those considerations. But in our constitutional tradition, courts do not defer when there is substantial evidence of intentional discrimination by government officials. And like other government officials, the president is not immune from judicial scrutiny. The president is empowered to make national security determinations, but he is also obligated to do so within the limits of the law. When the president acts from animus, he exceeds those limits and indeed corrupts the legitimate grounds on which he might have acted. I want to leave you with a few lines from the amicus brief that I helped to organize, which quotes from James Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments with support from Thomas Jefferson, and there is my obligatory reference. Um, (laughs)
2: LAUGHTER
3: Madison famously argued against religious establishment and in favor of religious liberty. In 1785, he warned against any law departing, quote, from that generous policy which offering an asylum to the persecuted and oppressed of every nation and religion promised a luster to our country and an accession to the number of its citizens. And then he added, instead of holding forth an asylum to the persecuted, the bill in its is itself a signal of persecution it degrades from the equal rank of citizens all those whose opinions and religion do not bend to those of the legislative authority. Distant as it may be in its present form from the Inquisition, it differs only um, in degree. The one is the first step, the other is the last step in the career of intolerance. The magnanimous sufferer under this cruel scourge in foreign regions must view the bill as a beacon on our coast warning him to seek some other haven where liberty and philanthropy in their due extent may offer a more certain repose from his troubles. When it hears argument a month from now, I hope the Supreme Court will heed Madison's warning and finally put an end to the signal of persecution that has been President Trump's travel ban. Thank you.